Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. It's the end of the kidding. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Let's hear it for our own prophet, the one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. I don't feel fine. I have a tummy ache. Well, uh, as we'll find, you have some time to resolve that uh, tummy ache, Noel, before the world does actually end, at least as we know it. They call me Ben. We are here today to talk about one of uh, one of our show's favorite things: cults, spiritual leaders, messianic figures, and as always, a prediction about the end of the world. Uh, this goes a lot of places, and I thought it would be I, I thought it would be really helpful for us at the very beginning of today's show on Millerism one of uh, America's first end-time Gospels, uh, I think it'd be very important for us to put a little disclaimer here to say, of course, we do not discriminate against anyone's personal spiritual beliefs. They are your own. However, this story, Millerism, is going to give us a distinct and unique look at American culture and at the way the United States approaches religious concepts, especially if they are somewhat distinct from <laughs> from the the dominant religious cultures of the time. Would you say that's a fair disclaimer? I would say so. And I will also say that by the end of this episode, the phrase Miller time is going to mean something completely different to you. The end times, not, not happy hour. Uh, so in the early 1800s, um, right after the Revolutionary War, you know, we go west, young man, and all of that stuff, right? Pushing out west uh, to achieve a new frontier. Um, and this is a period that uh, along with that comes a lot of other new developments and happenings and spreading of uh, various flavors of religion. 
bringing that religion to the 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 quote unquote heathens, you know, um, the, the, in that part of the country that was being settled, all of that. So there's this westward expansion of religion too, and along with that comes a lot of a uh, uh, weird apocalyptic kind of vibes. You know, you, you think of the sandwich board man walking around with a sign saying, you know, scrawled in like some sort of red paint saying the end is nigh, repent now, uh, or, or forever hold your peace. Maybe that's not quite how it goes, but uh, the, the end is nigh part for sure. Yeah, maybe with a maybe with a particularly juicy excerpt uh, from the Book of Revelations. Uh, oh, yeah. You probably have seen those folks, and I myself am a big fan of sandwich board messaging. I wish it was around more often. Maybe we'll bring it back to advertise a live show for Ridiculous History. But the thing about a lot of these new developments happening as this nation is forming and expanding is that many of these movements have apocalyptic overtones, kind of a kind of a metaphysical hard sell, an act now, lest ye regret it soon, vibe to them. And this period of history gives rise to what is commonly known as the Second Great Awakening. It's a period of revival. It's tonally, thematically, it's in step with the great physical expansion of the country. There is a, a great way for us to set it off with a quote from PBS. Uh, you can read a great article by L. Michael White called Prophetic Belief in the United States. And what better way than uh, this quote? Uh, we're going to summarize a little, but they say, one of the interesting things about the Second Great Awakening is it gives rise to a number of new religious sects within the American cultural experiment. This is what some people have called the rise of a free market religious economy in America. I love that phrase, but there are new groups popping up all over the place, and the article goes on to name utopian groups who move to places like Armana and Oneida, which you may know for cutlery today, true story, uh, and New York was known as the burned-over district because there were so many revivalist preachers coming from that area. And in this Second Great Awakening, we see the origins or the genesis, if we want to have some starky wordplay, of other groups that exist today, like Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Latter-day Saints, and so on, all of whom came out of that revivalist temperament of this time period. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of um, the television series Carnival. If you've mm -hmm. seen that, it's kind of a yep. Dust Bowl kind of like traveling carnival thing um, with this, this this big tent revival kind of vibes. And of course, in that show, uh, the uh, leader of the revival is possessed by some sort of demon. Um, <laughs> it's not a spoiler. You find out that like I think episode one unfortunate uh, turn of events that show didn't get renewed and it ends on a really like super intense cliffhanger. I think there was talk about turning it into a graphic novel or something, but I still thought it was quite an excellent show. And I think this period in American history is rife for this kind of exploration. Uh, you'll find it in a lot of fiction because the whole kind of doomsday prophecy mentality really is fascinating. It's like we, some, you know, the, the royal we as in part of this particular niche, you know, sect of a religious uh, order or faith, uh, know something that you don't know. The idea that we know when the world is going to end and only we can protect ourselves and hopefully convert you so that you also might not perish, you know, in the flames of, of the apocalypse. And, and that's fascinating to me. And I think just the idea of secret knowledge interests both of us. Yeah, agreed. And I, I have a long standing personal fascination since childhood with 
cult-like figures or religious leaders who name the day and the time. And they typically will have uh, some sort of revelation that's come directly to them from a supernatural or divine force, or they will feel they have made calculations based in, in math or in the passage of the stars that tell them not only that the world is going to end or change, but exactly when this will end and change. And they have some they have some commonalities here that we'll find. Uh, often it's going to be a, uh, a time that occurs within the lifetime of that religious figure. And this is where we go to our main character of the story, a guy named William Miller. Let's learn a little bit about Willie. He's born in 1782, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He's the son of a veteran from the Revolutionary War. And uh, his mom is the daughter of a Baptist preacher. He grows up on a farm in Hampton, New York, just over the border from Vermont. He's like a lot of kids on a farm in this time. He doesn't really go to school unless farm work allows him to. Otherwise, he's in the fields and he's trying to run the family business. He is literate. His mom teaches him to read. And he loves, loves, loves reading. But his mom is a little bit anxious about his choice of books, uh, especially because he likes reading things by Thomas Paine. And uh, these these are works that cast doubt on the validity of a lot of religious tenets and question the authority, can you believe it, of the Bible. So picture Miller's mom being someone who really likes classical music, and she taught her kid to love classical music, and now she's walking by his room, and she's like, why are you playing all these rock albums, right? Because Thomas Paine is like a rock album in in this household. It's absolutely a fantastic comparison, uh, because even when we see concepts that seem really dated to us now, there was once a time when it was absolutely revolutionary and or completely radical and dangerous seeming, you know, and terrifying. It's like kids now look at like Marilyn Manson and think, that, who's that goofy guy? Who's that goofy sex predator? Uh, but back when we were kids... He was like the scourge of parents, you know, far and wide. It was like, well, he's going to turn my kids into a, a Satan-worshipping, you know, hedonist, right? Yeah, it's the slippery slope argument that happens every time a new generation comes to the fore. You know, I picture some very disgruntled, uh, <laughs> a very disgruntled bishop somewhere going, well, I only approve of Gregorian chant. Uh, it's a common pattern. So like a lot of people, a lot of young people who are given to the love of language, Miller also starts writing poetry and he starts expanding his vocabulary. He falls in love with turns of phrase and so on. It's during the War of 1812 that he joins up with military forces. At first, he's a recruiter throughout Western Vermont, and then he's a captain of a company at the Battle of Plattsburgh. His company is mostly known for not having very good discipline. A little bit after the battle, he writes to his wife, and he has a description of the fighting that later goes hand in glove with the way he writes about the end of the world. He says, 
How grand, how noble, and yet how awful. The roaring of cannon, the bursting of bombs, the whizzing of balls, the popping of small arms, the cracking of timbers, the shrieks of the dying, the groans of the wounded, the swearing of soldiers, the smoke, the fire. Everything conspires to make the scene of battle awful and grand. Other than using the word awful repetitively, that's pretty good. Also, the whizzing of balls. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I thought the same thing. I'm a child. Because whizzing also means never mind. Um, so yeah, no, it's 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 good uh, doomsday prose right there. Mm-hmm. I would argue a little a little on the rep- uh, repetitive side uh, with awfulness, um, but it sounds pretty awful. Uh, you know what's funny though? I always found it interesting the differentiation between the word awesome and awful. They're basically, mm-hmm. they, they're like the same thing, but they mean completely different things. But I think awesome, you know, the awesome power of God or the awful, you know, annihilation of of, of Satan. Yeah, yeah, because uh, it's, it's weird because um, awful etymologically comes from a word called agful, uh, A-G-H-E-F-U-L, which just means worthy of respect or fear, striking with awe, causing dread. And awesome is inspiring awe or dread. <laughs> it's right. like, it's it's interesting. I, I really yeah, Awesome just means something containing awe, like something with awe. And awful to me means something that's full of awe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's fascinating too when we look at this excerpt from his letter to his wife this may have set him to reconsidering his deistic or deistical um, inclinations from his childhood deistical is sort of this religious belief that says yes there's a god who created the universe and created moral and natural laws but this god doesn't interfere in human affairs. That's a bit beneath this God's pay grade. And so now maybe, at least this is the supposition of Gary E. Waite, uh, writing for the Dartmouth College Library Bulletin, maybe this close brush with death, because he was seeing people die, maybe that turned Miller's mind around a little bit. Maybe death wasn't just the end of consciousness, Maybe there was some kind of system of reward and punishment in a world after the physical world of mud and pain and struggle. But still, he's he's wrestling with these problems. And uh, in September of 1816, Captain Miller uh, still kind of thinks, all right, dogmatic religion, that's not my vibe. The Bible has a lot of contradictions and inconsistencies, Christian Bible. And uh, he goes... Yeah, he goes to Fairhaven, Vermont to have a reunion with veterans from the Battle of Plattsburgh. And at this time, these reunions almost always open with a religious service and something that includes a sermon. And out of all the sermons that William Miller has heard up to this point in his life, this one's different. Something the preacher says hits him harder than a bullet. It hits him as hard as all the bullets that missed him. And uh, he converts. He comes away and he's like, okay, no, he raised some points. I'm very lucky. I might need to change my tune. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Well, and that was also a, a real characteristic of this period uh, of this, these religious kind of like awakenings or whatever. Uh, it was this like instantaneous conversion. You know what I mean? Like laying hands upon someone and all of a sudden the word of God just filling their, their mind, body and soul. You know, it's certainly something that happens today uh, as well. But this it really did, wouldn't you say, Ben, there was this kind of almost like explosive sense of, of, of conversion, usually at the hands of some really expert uh, orator, you know, who was able to just kind of like imbue people with the power of, of the word. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to be said about the psychology of social dynamics at revivals, which uh, are something we should look at in the future for this show. But I, I think your point holds. Let's fast forward, but not too far. So the Sunday after this reunion, where this preacher really gets to him, William Miller is reading from the scriptures at this Baptist chapel near his house. And he becomes so emotionally fraught that his voice breaks and he physically can't go on. Now, he's still not a dyed-in-the-wool convert, but he is struggling. He's vacillating. He's going back and forth with this argument in his head between faith and between reason. And he says, look, I am a believer now. I get it. I understand. But caveat, I'm unable to reconcile this, my understanding, my emotional, experiential belief with my intellectual objection to the conflicts between Scripture and between history. So I need to study the Bible with historical, secular notes, and I, right. I, I'm going to make sense of it all. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, and so he does just that. He literally loses interest in reading anything else but the Bible. Um, he goes through a chapter and verse just methodically 
There's a quote from him kind of describing how he tackled the project. I commenced with Genesis and read verse by verse. Whenever I found anything obscure, my practice was to compare it with all collateral passages. Then by letting every word have its proper bearing on the subject, I pursued the study of the Bible. And here's the kicker. And was fully satisfied that it is its own interpreter. Ooh, can we unpack that, Ben? Does that yeah. basically mean he's saying it's infallible? Because it, it, no one, no other tome could possibly dissect the Bible except except itself? Or is he saying that everything you need to properly interpret the Bible is already in there? It's kind of the latter. So he's he's doing, he's got big damn round vibes at this point. Because to him, the Bible is almost a puzzle, right? He's saying that, if I can decode certain parts of it, particularly the references to dates, then I will understand. So perhaps all the stuff that I thought was contradictory or didn't make sense was just on me because I didn't know how to interpret it. And all the answers are there for those who know the correct way to encounter this text. So he moves in 1814 across the border. He goes to Lowhampton, New Jersey, and he sets up a farm with his wife and people in town, you know, this is every, every town is kind of a small town outside of like New York, Boston, and a couple other places. So everybody talks about everyone. Uh, you're familiar with it. If you've ever spent time in a small town and people are kind of, you know, joking, not in a necessarily super mean way, but it's, it's like a little meme people have about his uh, his religious change of heart. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to make this serious. I am going to master the Bible. He spends pretty much all the time that he can reading and researching, like you said, this one book. He becomes obsessed in particular with decoding how and when Jesus Christ will return in the second coming. And he says, the Bible has the answers. It's just on me to figure out what, what specifically is going on with these dates. And it's not, and he spends time on this. He spends almost a decade. It's not till eight years later that he thinks he has his answer. Yeah, he's in the meantime, he's he's essentially being, you know, visited by uh, visions of sorts, you know, in his dreams. And he's also interpreting those and, you know, and using those as, as entries into his research as well. Uh, in 1832, he became a preacher, actually, you know, in a small town kind of situation. I don't know that he actually even went to seminary. I think he was just sort of like a, you know, manic street preacher, I guess. You didn't have to, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because he was writing all of these articles and these letters to the editor to the Vermont Telegraph, which was a Baptist paper that like outlined all of the research and all of these views that he's kind of been developing over the, the last handful of years. And he starts getting a lot of traction. A lot of followers, you know, I mean, essentially he's going viral. Letters start coming in, too many to read, asking for more detail, more specificity on his views. And from that kind of, you know, humble beginning, uh, Millerism itself was born. Yeah. And there's, I, I want to spend a second on this because it wasn't until he wrote to the Telegraph that he really started to have traction. If you go back through some of his earlier letters, he said that once he once he figured out his calculations, he would talk with people about it in private and then later in a more public space. 
but he felt like folks weren't taking him seriously. And this all changed when he got the power of the press behind him. He had uh, mathematics of a sort that he used to uh, calculate the end times. Oh, and his conclusion, of course, was that the end is near. Uh, It's not a particularly surprising conclusion for people who study uh, apocalyptic belief systems. But here's what he did. He had a uh, set of what he thought of as common sense rules for deciding which passages should be taken literally and which should be taken figuratively. And uh, he said, if it makes good sense as it stands and does no violence to the simple laws of nature, then it should be understood literally. If it doesn't do those two things, it should be figurative. And this is all like on his vibe of it. If it, if he reads it and he goes, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, right, yeah, yeah, that's good. And then if it doesn't make sense to him or if it seems um, impossible from what he knows of the world, then he's like, oh, it's a metaphor. You know what I mean? It's not literal. Even this approach didn't solve everything. Soon uh, he began to believe that some words must have more than one symbolic meaning. So day is a great example of this. Day, for example, might mean not just a 24-hour unit of time. It could also mean an indefinite period. It could mean a year, or it could mean a thousand years. Well, sure. It's like, you know, even today we use expressions like back in the day, or it's been a minute, you know, things like sure. that. I mean, there, there the are- The other day. You know, uh-huh. Which is super of confusing. I know Max is going to want to punch me, but you can't because we're on Zoom uh, when I bring this up. But the way he's interpreting the Bible here, like a puzzle, it kind of reminds me of the way people pick up on the lore of like the FromSoft games, like Elden Ring and uh, and Dark Souls and all those, because the, the plots are very obscure and kind of obtuse. And you have to like pick up objects and read like the text on, you know, the, the sword that you find in a chest or whatever, or like a piece of armor or something. And then through those little bits and pieces and these breadcrumbs, you kind of develop a bigger picture of the lore and like of, you know, the pantheon of like the gods and all that stuff. I think the Bible is like a slightly less obscured version of that. But also I think there's a lot of opportunity to have debatable conclusions about the lore of Elden Ring, as there also is to have debatable conclusions about the uh, the lore and the meaning of the Bible, which is why the idea of like the end times, that was his conclusion. Not necessarily, you know, what everybody thinks when they read the Bible. This is sort of like a novel interpretation at the time, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, like it's it's a known fact among religious scholars that the Bible is based on the lore of Skyrim, clearly. Uh, and uh, this, it, it happens in Skyrim as well. But yeah, it goes it goes down to interpretation and the idea of what, like at this point, he's not even quite questioning exactly what the end of the world means. But he's trying in a pseudoscientific way to break down this text, right? And we should say he's acting in good faith. He's not trying to con people. He's trying to satisfy a um, a philosophical battle within himself, and he becomes obsessed with finding a truth that he feels is solid and understandable. So if we go back to his day thing, he is uh, choosing the interpretation of words like day based on what seems to best agree with his knowledge of history and what seems most consistent 
with the overall passage of the Scripture under consideration. This is when he gets to Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is a pivotal text for Miller. Uh, He is especially taken with Daniel 8.14, a relatively short little verse. It just says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. It's about the cleansing of sin from earth. And so he thinks, he muddles this over. You know, picture the montage or, you know, that meme uh, with the guy from Narcos who's just standing around in his empty house. You guys know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, he's he's doing that. And through his head, Daniel 8.14. Think also of the beautiful mind meme with all the equations superimposed. Or the galaxy brain meme, which would require maybe comparing different things, but still, I like the I like the ultimate mind explosion one at the end. Um, but yeah, he he thinks about this and starts to wrap his head around uh, something that he felt may have been missed. He believes that Christ would return at that time, at the twenty three hundred year period that was rep- that was uh, referenced in Daniel eight fourteen. He was really just starting to understand the message and actually initially kind of misunderstood what its connection might be to the 2300-day prophecy. Yeah, yeah, he thinks, okay, cleansing of the sanctuary, really, and you've seen this in, in many religious services, right, where the um, the religious leader quotes a passage from a holy text and then says, but what does that mean exactly? You know, let's break it down. What is a date? I said, what is a day? And, you know, it goes on. Uh, He's doing this for himself often, and he says, okay, cleansing the sanctuary, what does this mean? Well, this means cleansing the earthly sanctuary. This means cleansing of the church at the return of Christ, because what is the church but the earthly sanctuary? And however, he says and stops himself, the sanctuary referred to here is instead the heavenly sanctuary. And then he dives into something called the day-year principle. You guys know about this one? Uh, I didn't uh, until uh, researching this, you know. And big shout-out to super-duper research associate Zach Williams for digging deep into this stuff for us and tipping us to some of these concepts that, you know, both of us being equally fascinated with end of days prophecies and doomsday theology and all of that. Uh, There's a lot of new stuff in here for me as well. So Ben, could you explain to us the day year principle? Yeah. So it's also called the year day principle or the year for a day principle, which is, I think, a more accurate way to describe it. It's a way of interpreting biblical prophecy in which the word day in any prophetic statement is considered to be symbolic of a year of actual time. So from Miller's interpretation, that 2,300-day prophecy is really 2,300 years. And so this leads him to initially calculate that, yes, Jesus Christ is returning. Because remember, Miller's a Christian. He believes all this stuff. He says, Jesus Christ is returning, and Christ is coming back in 1843. And then, you know, Eureka, he claps his hands. He's like, of course, it makes sense. Year for a day. That's solid math. And the church will be cleansed during that time because it is a sanctuary. So one day in prophetic scripture equals one year of actual time. So that's 2,300 years of history. That's what the prophecy of Daniel 8 is. And uh, 
the details of the system that he makes, Miller, not Daniel, are complicated. I like dug into it and it's still, it's, mm, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's a little more of an esoteric kind of like obscured version of like dog years to human years conversions, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it, it gets a little funky if you look too deeply into it. But so, you know, again, super complicated, super kind of, you know, uh, obtuse and obscured. Any other $5 word for complicated and mysterious, really, because it was kind of this like, you know, mystery theology kind of thing, at least had the vibe of that. So they're a little hard to follow, uh, much like the uh, the story of Elden Ring. He drew upon passages in the book of Daniel, as we mentioned, that referred to 1,260 days. Uh, he translated the days into years, and then he used that as the start point to the notion of rebuilding the Jewish temple after the uh, captivity of the Babylonians and moving forward from that point. And that is often like a, a, a very important point in history, right, Ben? Like uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, especially like, you know, in uh, traditional um, Jewish history and faith. That's a very important uh, um, historical event that often time is marked by. Yeah, absolutely. And for people who consider themselves skeptics overall or for people at the time who are skeptical of Miller's findings, this is the moment where you say, okay, I feel like you are just moving things around to fit a conclusion, which is the idea that this is all possibly going to happen while you are alive. That's, again, that's a thing that's pretty common with a lot of cult leaders. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
And it's maybe unfair to call him a cult leader at this point. He's not trying to get over on people or run their lives. He is getting a lot of PR, though. And there are a lot of folks in his time who totally buy into this system. Uh, he lectures around Vermont and New York. He gets invited to increasingly faraway places, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Connecticut. He's getting momentum. And by 1840, just three years before the second coming of Christ, per his calculations, a Boston publisher named Joshua Vaughn Himes starts a newspaper dedicated entirely to William Miller's teachings as he is traveling around lecturing. So now you've got the power of the press again, just like when he was writing to the Vermont Telegraph. At this point now, we can properly call his belief system a movement, the Millerite movement. And Himes is a convert as well. Himes first encounters Miller in New Hampshire and then says, okay, I get what you're saying. Miller, you've got to come with me to Chardon Street Chapel in Boston. You've got to preach to those folks. Miller is 10 toes down on this. He goes and preaches multiple <laughs> times to packed audiences throughout December of 1839. And then Himes uh, and him, uh, they become friends over this time. And so Himes says, Father Miller, you've got to, you've got to come to my house, come to my personal house and look, I'm going to make sure that you can talk to people in every single city in the union. And Miller is okay with this, but again, he's not a P.T. Barnum. He's not a flim-flam artist. He really believes in what he's saying. And Himes is like the power. Himes is powering this thought. You know, it's funny, Ben, we talked about this pretty recently. I can't remember what episode, but just the idea of how some flim-flam men don't know they're flim-flam men. And again, this is all based in the power of belief. And there may well still be some people that believe in what Miller put out there. But it's an interesting line because you're out there converting people with the best of intentions, maybe, but also putting them in a situation that is a form of kind of almost psychosis, you know, or uh, the kind of belief system that is so extreme and so kind of nihilistic that it could put their families, their relationship with their families in jeopardy. It's almost like a, a QAnon kind of situation, you know? And again, not trying to disparage people who believe in the rapture or things like that. I personally think it's, it's not on, but, you know, people are going to believe what they're going to believe. And I fully uh, believe in your power and, and right to do so. But it is an interesting line when you say he's not a flim-flam man, but from the outset, a lot of these revival tent preachers could be seen that way. It's all about what's in their heart. Do they believe or are they after something more specific? Yeah. And I love a, I love a good tent revival. I just like the, uh, the energy of it. Um, but I see exactly what your, what your point is there. Himes is not the originator of these ideas, but he is a huge force in the popularization of it. Let's talk a little bit about how we get to that newspaper. So, Himes decides, I'm going to be your publicist. I'm going to be like your marketing guy. I'm going to be your brand manager for your message. So he gets Miller to preach in New York, in Philly, in Washington. Uh, Miller is not used to this. This is the big leagues for him. This is deep water. And um, now he has gone from talking to like groups in small towns in New England 
to thousands of Americans in the biggest cities in the country. And Miller says, okay, look, that's great. We can have you walking around pressing the flesh all the live long day up till the end of the world in 1843. However, we need to take advantage of mass media. And that's why Himes publishes that newspaper we're talking about, The Signs of the Times. Himes knew the odds were against him. He didn't have the money to make this himself in a sustainable way, and he didn't have a built-in sturdy subscription base, but he was able to convince, this is how we know Himes himself must have been charismatic, he was able to convince a group called Dow and Jackson, anti-slavery publishers, to print the paper. And these guys, these publishers said, well, the interest in the second advent that word's going to be important later, folks. This second coming has grown so much that we could definitely sell papers off this. We could sell mm. it out. This, You know what? They said, Himes, Miller, we will assume the financial responsibility for keeping the paper going and publishing it semi-monthly if you, Himes, can make content for it and then start building a subscription list. And Himes said, you know what? I'll do it as a volunteer. Yeah, and they're like, Himes, your signs of the times must rhyme because <laughs> that's going to sell more papers too, right? No, right, okay, yes. Yeah. But I think it's a missed opportunity. It should have been Himes' signs of the times. Um, but this was a big deal. This was a platform, a real platform. And as it turns out, it was a it was a big deal. At the end of the first year of publication, the Signs of the Times by Himes had a subscription base of fifteen hundred people, which might not seem massive, um, but these are all like hardline devout believers. So from these relatively meager uh, beginnings, Himes was able to persuade Dow and Jackson to sell him the paper. Uh, and by 1842, the paper had gained so much uh, attention that Himes began to publish it weekly. And nine months after that, a man named Josiah Litch was hired as the associate editor. Um, you can't have a name like Josiah Litch and not be a hardline religious nut. Not spelled like Lich King, though. It's L-I-T-C-H. So shout That's out to all right. my That's fellow D&D &D, D &D fans. Yeah, it's Josiah Lich, not the Lich King. They're the first to the, the, first to the post with a Millerite-focused publication, but they're not the only ones. Other Millerite-themed periodicals start getting published over the next few years. It's a very compelling strategy. The, the second coming of Christ is in 1843. It's next year. You want to read a paper about it? Of course. The money flies out of people's hands. And not all of these periodicals are as successful as the signs of the times. But Himes doesn't stop there. There are a plethora of publications. And whenever I say the word plethora, I want to point out that plethora means too much of something, not just a lot. It means so much that it's not good. Uh, so the, the market's flooded. Uh, Himes is moving on to other things, and he's publishing books and uh, tracts, like pamphlets, that are written by Miller and other preachers who agree with him, other Advent preachers. He calls this the Second Advent Library. If you are Millerite, if you are down with his teachings and his calculations, you are encouraged not just to buy these books, but to buy a copy for yourself 
and buy a copy to lend out to your friends and neighbors so they get the good word. Uh, and uh, then they they develop even like now they're getting into merchandising, right? Heims totally. <laughs> right, works with Charles Fitch, not Litch, and a guy with a really cool name, Apollos Hale. to uh, create a prophetic chart. And they developed this for use in 1842. Yeah, wouldn't it be funny if like, you know, the advent calendar, like it's like a piece of chocolate for every day leading up to the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Small, small consolation there. Uh, I I didn't really realize until the research for this episode that advent does refer to like the second coming of Christ. Um, which I guess is what happens when I don't. Well, I don't understand why is it an Advent calendar then? Because isn't the Advent calendar it leads up to Christmas, which is when it's the birth of Christ. That's not that's the birth, but not the it, rebirth. That would be Easter, right? Uh, the rebirth is the resurrection of Christ. That's the, right. The second Advent is the second coming. So the Advent calendar celebrates the first coming. Does that make sense? All right. I suppose so. It it seems to me like the word Advent specifically refers to a second coming. So they should just call it like a baby Jesus' birthday calendar or something. It's a little confusing is all. Yeah. Um, But Advent is just the, it comes from the Latin Adventus, just means coming. So in the church calendar, it, the Advent calendar is the period uh-huh. of preparation for the celebration of the birth of Christ at Christmas. But then the second Advent is the preparation for the second coming of Christ. Ben? He got me. Thank you for that. Um, so here's the thing. We start seeing these uh, this literature being spread outside of the United States. Uh, around 50,000 copies of Signs of the Times were distributed in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, and it wasn't long before the, the little rag started to get some, some real attention and not all good attention um, from the secular press because this is some hardline doom and gloom stuff uh, that could be, I could see how it could be met with some, you know, uh, resentment. It's like, what? Why are you spreading all this, like, uh, this misinformation about the end of the world, getting people all worked up into a tizzy? Yeah. And also, I want to pause here just for a second because we're getting really close to his original 1843 prediction, right? But he has begun to modify this prediction, and uh, his he never sets an exact date. He sets a window of time. So at the urging of his followers, he narrows his time frame down to this. And I'm going to give this quotation from him. He says, my principles in brief are that Jesus Christ will come again to this earth, cleanse, purify, and take possession of the same with all the saints sometime between, here it is, March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. So when you hear him talking about, uh, when you when you hear us talking about these secular responses, know that we're getting close to that window, but we haven't crossed the window yet. We haven't gotten to 1845 or indeed April 1844. But you are you are on the money. People started calling him out and saying that maybe. Maybe he was a con artist. When the second Millerite journal came out, it was called The Midnight Cry, which is a great name for a publication. Really cool. Right? It launches in November 1842, just a few months before Miller's apocalyptic window. And when it launches, a paper out of New Hampshire, the Congregational Journal, 
says, huh, looks like these folks have made a profitable business out of scaring people. And then they said, quote, though the world's doom is announced to be the 13th of next month, his prospectus covers 13 weeks for which period he does not hesitate to take payments in advance. So they're saying like, you're, you're taking money after the apocalypse, in our opinion. It's weird because the critics aren't just secular people. The critics are also other established religious denominations. And they get more and more intolerant of this. Like if you were a preacher and you're known to have uh, an association with Millerism, then when you're on a tour, when you're traveling and you want to talk to other people about the message of God, they're more and more likely to say, oh, no, I've heard about you guys. Uh, there is no, there's no pulpit for you here, no platform. It's okay. I brought my own Apple box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my own tent. Box. Mm-hmm. And my own megaphone, which was also invented by Himes. Kidding. It's just a coiled up piece of cardboard, you know, that I sh- shout into one end, but it definitely amplifies. It does the job. So as uh, as we decided, Noel, this is going to be a two-parter. We're all very much into this idea, and we've yeah. gone for like an hour, and we haven't even gotten to the turn, right? A credit to the bonkers nature of this story and to our uh, super research associate, uh, Zachary Williams, for digging this one up for us and doing such a fine job. Very thorough. Very thorough, that man. Um, but yeah, uh, one of our rare preemptive two-parts. I think you're going to be seeing maybe a few more of these uh, coming down the pike where we're going to let you know ahead of time. We do hate that we have to make this one a Thursday, Tuesday situation, but um, it, it couldn't be helped. Couldn't be helped. Yeah, and we think it is going to be a Heinz 57 style worth the wait. Good things come to those who wait, I think is the tagline. But tune in this Tuesday to hear about what went wrong with Millerism, to learn a little bit more about the dark side of the equation, and uh, particularly to learn about something called the Great Disappointment. I just don't see how anything could possibly go wrong with this story, Ben. It feels like it's just being set up for a uh, a real climactic uh, victory here for, for old Miller and his uh, his his followers. But yeah, uh, you know, maybe we we'll did be kinda, converted. We, 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 we did kind of spoil, I guess history really spoiled it more than anything, but, you know, we, we haven't been raptured yet uh, that we know of. Um, but it's funny, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the second episode, but this is almost kind of a pre-rapture kind of situation, at least in the rapture, like the good people get to be lifted up and taken to Jesus and the baddies, you know, get assume, presumably, you know, cast down into the, the pit uh, or just incinerated or something. No, it, it depends on the version. There's also the whole left behind model where just all the good people disappear and then the, the, the bad people just stay uh, on earth, which is, I guess, a punishment worse than, than hell. Yeah, and we can't wait for you to be part of this story, for you to join the conversation with us. So tune in next Tuesday for part two of Millerism and learn why we're still around after 1840-something making a podcast in 2022. Thanks, as always, to our own personal prophet, the one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to, uh, yes, thanks to, uh, first of his name, the Quister, a.k.a. Jonathan Strickland. Uh, Thanks to Alex Williams. Who else, Noel? Oh, of course, Christopher Asiotis here in Spirit. Oh, yeah. Eve's Jeff Coates, the same. Uh, you know what? Max gets just another thanks from me, uh, and I'm going to give 
No, see, Max, that's, you screwed it up, man. You can't double woo. You can't triple woo yourself. I was going to woo you so that your personal woo would have seemed a little less self-congratulatory, but yeah, never mind. Oh, my God. You guys have been wooing each other since that hot tub incident. I know. It's true. Then there was also that uh, balcony woo, woo. The balcony incident uh, where I was wooed as well. And then we died in each other's arms in a crypt of sorts, only to be resurrected to podcast another day. I am so glad you guys are here. Uh, this show is one of my favorite things to do, and we hope you enjoy the wild story ahead. Uh, that's it for us this week, folks. Uh, don't join a cult. Definitely not. And unless you're into it. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.